taking our time to unfold what has been one of the, is one of the most important documents that's ever been written, this letter that Paul wrote. It's shaped many, many um, events in history and lives and um, had an outsized impact. And largely, it's been an articulation of a vision for the church, what the church is. But in these later chapters, Paul has been calling on the Christians to live lives consistent with their faith and teaching these believers, many of whom had come from completely non-Christian backgrounds, not even Jewish in the sense that they didn't have any heritage in Scripture. They came from pagan backgrounds. They were worshippers of idols. They were worshippers of handmade gods. And having converted to Christianity, as you can imagine, there was an enormous sense of the learning curve to adapt to the the demands and the call of what it means to follow Jesus. Now, when we read passages like this, we find that it has almost the same degree of strangeness to our ears at times. And um, that will certainly be true for some of you as we read this next passage. We're looking at um, an element of his, Paul's teaching and the scriptural teaching in general that, in, that jars with many and that seems to be so out of kilter with the culture in which we live. So what I want to do is we're going to read the entirety of the section, which is from verse 22 to the end of the chapter, end of chapter 5. Um, but we won't attempt to unpack it all because there's too much in there. But I want to speak on the first part, which is where Paul addresses wives. And here's how the passage goes. He says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I promise, would you mind just taking it down just a fraction? It's just getting a bit of boomy there. Thank you, brother. Now, as I said, I want to start just by looking at the initial part of this passage, where Paul speaks directly to um, the wives in the congregation. And I'm mindful of many things as I get into this. I'm mindful of the fact that um, the majority of you in this room are not married. And, um, and you know, you, I suspect most of you would aspire to getting married at some point and want that for yourself. Um, I don't assume that's true across the board, but I imagine most of you want that. Um, so I don't think it's in any way irrelevant. You have to understand the Christian teaching on these things and what the Bible has to say. But of course, it may feel like there's a less immediate relevance, but I want you to really understand the importance of this. Perhaps the thought that's topmost in my mind, though, uppermost in my mind, is the fact that this is 
extraordinarily controversial. Um, you know, if you were to, to make a list of the most um, countercultural and difficult themes to speak on in our present cultural moment, this would have to be in your top five. I'm pretty sure of that um, in terms of Christian beliefs. And uh, that's because the whole issue of men and women and how they interact and relate both in society but also in the home, which is our focus today, has become uh, one of the most important justice issues of our day. Our world tends to think about justice narrowly through the lens of equality, that justice and equality are, are the same thing, essentially. The Bible talks a lot about justice, but it has a much broader vision of what justice means than just that one thing. But when you look at it through that lens and you see, um, and your, your fundamental basic philosophy, I think, which is what pertains these days, is an idea that everybody should have a sense of um, being on equal standing in every possible respect, then there, there seems to be a disconnect here between that the pursuit of justice in society and in, in every other context and what Paul's describing here in terms of a wife's posture towards her husband. And that's, that's challenging. That's a tension that you have to understand and work with and, and begin to enter into the biblical mindset and worldview if you're going to have any hope of resolving. Even Christians disagree on this. You know, if you were to walk into any other church this Sunday evening, you might find someone teaching an entirely different, different idea on these themes than what you'll hear this evening. And uh, that just illustrates the fact that we are dealing here with something which is incredibly, incredibly controversial. Um, but at the same time, I, I, I think I can honestly say that I don't feel defensive or anxious about what is written here. So if I'm sweating, it's just the balmy weather, you know, what, you know, what can I say? Um, I feel that when I, you know, you've heard me on this regularly, but when I look at the situation in our world, I see a lot of good that's been accomplished in recent decades, in the last century or so. We've seen a lot of change in society. But I also see that one of the, one of the probably unintended consequences of the changes that we've seen societally has been the breakdown and collapse of family life and of marriage in particular. And I think anybody who takes an honest look at these things will acknowledge that something is broken, we don't know how to fix it. And when you start with that observation, you have to reckon that the loud voices that would dismiss and poo-poo what the Bible has to say on these issues do not have anything better to offer. Now, as Christians, I think it's good to begin with the posture of willingness, even embracing the fact that we are different. I don't assume you're all Christian here tonight. I understand some of you are thinking about what it means to be a Christian, but a Christian is someone who embraces the reality that I, the world may go this way, but I'm a follower of Jesus. And so at a minimum, it is important that we can embrace even the difficult parts of what it means to be a disciple of Christ and do so without shame. Jesus said that we mustn't be ashamed of him. So at a minimum, there is just a willingness to embrace difference, and that's okay. But I think beyond that, and to say something slightly more positive here, if the backdrop in the world around us is a great deal of brokenness, I believe that when the Scripture's teaching on these matters is properly understood and worked out in a spirit-filled, Christ-centered way, that the things that we can learn about marriage and Scripture, and particularly what Paul teaches here in this passage, 
can give us a kind of key or a way into experiencing extraordinary flourishing within the context of romantic love and committed relationships. And I say that with a strong degree of conviction. I believe that God's way is absolutely best. And so I want to say to you, friends, I think this is incredibly important for you. It's important for you to recover a vision for what the Bible has to say on these things. For your own marriages in the future, should God call you to be married, for your family life, and ultimately to benefit and bless church and your involvement in God's work more generally. Now, there's a lot that can be said. I have a lot to say. Um, I think my wife was commenting to me on the way in that this probably should have been four sermons. And uh, because I'm going away on sabbatical soon and have only actually two opportunities to speak on Ephesians remaining, I wanted to just say as much as possible in one sermon. And so I'm going to just launch in and we'll go brisk and we'll try and keep this sharp and to the point. But I want you to, to buckle in and brace yourself because I think we're going to have to just, just run at this, okay? And my plan is to, to, first of all, just open up what the verses mean. I want you to see clearly the meaning of these few verses that we're looking at, the teaching that Paul articulates here. Then we'll take a step back and understand two of the massive theological pillars that undergird the teaching that he articulates here. And then finally, I want to address some of the questions and concerns that no doubt will have occurred in your mind as I'm speaking. So that's my plan. Let's begin then by just taking apart these three verses. The first one is this, verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, it wouldn't be obvious to you, but it is a striking thing, first of all, I want to just point this out, that Paul speaks directly to these women in this way. Because we're he's speaking into a context in a day and an age in which women had greatly diminished rights in comparison to um, the society in which we now live. He was assuming that they have a certain sense of agency and dignity that they can hear his teaching and voluntarily choose to embrace it for themselves. He doesn't speak over their heads and address the husbands and say, husbands, rule over your wives. He rather speaks directly to the wives. And I think it's an important thing to notice right at the outset. And more than that, what you have to see here is, is it, what he's calling for, and what we need to understand, this, this posture of submission to a husband. He doesn't say that this is a general thing for all women to all men. It's very narrow. He says, wives submit to your own husbands. So whereas we've often seen the kind of way in which societies and cultures have so often tended towards a general chauvinism in which men uh, tend to view themselves as better and will often look down on women more generally and wall women out in all kinds of spheres, that's not the attitude or heart or posture that's going on in this passage. But Paul's saying that within the very specific context of marriage, that that most fundamental institution that's instituted by God, there is this dynamic. And this is the dynamic. The language, the word here that's used is this word submit. It's a word that was used in the context in in military terms. It means if you break apart kind of the etymology of the word, it means to be ordered under. If you looked at a military unit, you would see the commanding officer and his subordinates ordered under his rule or command within that unit. 
And that was the context in which this word was used, and it's the same meaning or sense that it carries here when he speaks to these wives and says, submit yourselves. In other words, put yourselves under the authority of your husband, voluntarily, willingly, lovingly, but put yourself in that position of submission. Now, it shouldn't surprise you that every one of these lines has had countless words spilled in debate and commentary and uh, the back and forth, the to and fro, everything is, 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 is up for grabs and questioned by people who want to, to kind of um, to take this apart in order to reduce its force. And this verse is not no less the case, right? It's, it looks fairly clear to you on the surface. You say, okay, it's very hard to get around what Paul's saying here. But one of the things that's observed is that if you just cast your minds up the passage a little bit, you'll see in verse 21 that Paul had talked about us submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So he talks about a general um, sort of um, culture within the church that ought to exist in which there is a humility and a self-denial in which all of us prefer one another in a posture of submission. And then he says, wives to husbands. And some people have said, well, listen, if, if the great banner over this whole passage is that we all submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, then doesn't that massively reduce the, the force of what Paul's saying to wives? And I, I don't see the two things as in any way contradictory. I think you can have a general culture of submission in a church, that there's humility that characterizes the way we relate to each other, but you can also then address the specific institution of marriage, and that's precisely what Paul does here. Why, though, do we, do we find ourselves wanting to wriggle out of the force of this? Why do we resist it? Why is that particularly true? Because this is a very modern phenomenon. I think for, for, for the last two millennia, most people have not really questioned what's being written here. They understood it at face value. But, of course, in the last 70 years, years or so, there has been a great effort to try and take this apart and, and, and blunt the force of what's being said. Why do we feel like that? I think the basic answer is because we dislike the notion of authority and submission as givens within human relationships. We think authority is inherently evil. I think there's that assumption at work under the surface. And that therefore submission is inherently disempowering and victimizing. And that seems to me to be Part of our what is generally what has been described in culture is the kind of the view of expressive individualism. If you want a phrase that kind of captures the modern Western way of seeing life, it's it's, it's often, I think this this phrase captures it beautifully. Expressive individualism: the idea that the highest aim or end that you can attain to in life is the unfolding of your inner potential in an authentic and honest way. You be you. Be true to yourself. Be true to your heart. These kinds of expressions and phrases and ideas that, that filter through in all of the films that we watch these days and all the, all the fiction and all the stories that we tell, this is the basic fundamental message and meaning of life as we see it in the West these days. Express yourself if you want to be a fulfilled and actualized person. And of course, Expressing yourself in that way seems to cut against, radically against this notion of submit yourself to another. But it seems to me that the dynamics of authority and submission are inescapable in life. 
society, work, school, sports, family, everything requires the dynamics of authority and submission if it's to work in harmony and peace and unity. It has to. And more than that, if you're a Christian, you've got to acknowledge that submission can and often is a profoundly beautiful thing. I'll take, for example, the words of Jesus when he describes his mission on earth. He says, I've come down from heaven. This is John 6. I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus is describing his entire life mission through the lens of submission to the will of another, to the Father. And nobody, nobody would look at Jesus and say, there is a squashed man, inhibited, unable to express his authentic self. They'd say, no, he came and fulfilled his life purpose and mission through a voluntary submission to his Father's will. And therefore, I think that you have to begin to recalibrate your thinking on this language of authority and submission and recognize that, yes, it can be abusive and awful in certain contexts, but it doesn't have to be. It can be beautiful. It can lead to flourishing. It can lead to fulfillment. It can lead to God bringing out of what he has put inside you in the way in which he intended for that to happen. That's the first verse, a clear call for wives to submit to their husbands. Let's look at the next one. He says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now again, the word that has caused an enormous amount of wrangling and disagreement here is this word head. What does Paul mean when he says that the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church? A lot of people have objected to this more recently and said, listen, what we're doing when we read this and understand that the husband's role there is to have a kind of authoritative leadership role within the home, we're importing our modern English understanding of the language of, of being a head back into the New Testament and back into the Greek in which Paul originally wrote. And if you look at the Greek on its own terms and you look at the ways in which this word occurs in the, uh, in the first century, what you discover is that it didn't mean authority. It doesn't mean leadership in that way. It meant something different. Very often what people want to substitute it with is the word source. And you could think, for example, if you talked about the, the head of the river in ancient terms, that would mean the source of the river, that everything flows out from the source. And so they say, listen, this is what, what, what is being spoken of here. Christ is the source of life to his church. And therefore, maybe that's what, what Paul's grasping at here. To which I would say, well, first of all, it makes no sense. Absolutely, we can say that about Christ, but in what way can we say that about a husband in relationship to his wife? It doesn't make any sense, does it? So we've already made this nonsensical, which is not a good start when you're trying to comment on Scripture. But more than, important than that, look at the context. If ever you want to understand what words mean, you've got to look at them within their context. Look at the words before, the sentences before, the sentences after. And when you take this paragraph as a whole, this, these three verses that we're looking at, there isn't really much doubt, is there, about what Paul meant. He says, wives submit to your husbands. The husband is the head. And then the final verse, as the church submits to Christ, also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Is this really a helpful way 
of casting light on Scripture when we question what this word means in this way, and I just don't think it is at all. But let's, let me just quickly show you a couple of verses which help you just, just nail this one. I know that for some of you this will feel like somewhat obscure theology, but I know for any of you who've really wrestled with this stuff, you will have come across these arguments, and I want to give you sufficient answers for them and do and honor you in that way. Look at chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse 22. He says that God put all things under his feet, under Christ's feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Put him, he put all things under his feet. Now, is there ever an image that, more, that better captures the biblical vision of, of a rule or authority than that? It's, it's the phrase that you see all the way through Scripture that's used of kings and emperors, things being under their feet, and gave him as head over all things. It's the same word. So he's speaking there of Christ's authority over all. Again, flick forward in your Bibles. A couple of letters later, you'll come to Colossians in the second chapter. And look at verse 10, Colossians 2.10. It says, As you've been, And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. He is the head of all rule and authority. So I think it's important just to put this one to bed and just to say, listen, we can see that evidently in Paul's own writings, in the letter itself, when Paul uses the language of someone being ahead, he very often meant, he, he, what was caught up in there was this idea of leadership, this idea of authority. So when he applies it to husbands here in this passage, I don't think there's really much question what he means. Now we could take a step back from that and we could spend some time just looking at what headship is in Scripture. And I think it would actually... It would be incredibly, immensely helpful to you, but I, I really don't have time this evening. But in essence, friends, understand what it means is a kind of representative responsibility or leadership. Adam was the first head of the human race. And because he sinned, we all fell into sin through his action because he represented us. Jesus is the head of a new human race because he was righteous and died on the cross for us. We receive his righteousness and now get what we do not deserve by way of life because our representative head stood in our place. So when this language is now being applied to husbands in the context of marriage and the family and the home, he's saying that through God's eyes, the husband has a unique place of authority and of responsibility within the context of the marriage. So much can and should be said on that, but I want to just move on. Look at this last verse, verse 24. He says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And here I just want you to focus on that little phrase, in everything. In everything. You see, one of the ways in which we might want to evade or dull the force of these verses is by understanding them to apply just to a narrow part of our lives. We might say that, okay, submission might work within a certain, certain sphere within the marriage, but not just generally, not in everything, just, just narrowly. And I think that fits with our modern view of how marriage works. I think the modern vision of marriage is a bit like the Venn diagrams that you drew in schools. You remember when you draw two circles and then they overlap and you'd look at where the overlap is on the circles? And it seems to me that the modern vision of marriage is two individuals 
both, both going about their lives, both pursuing their own aims and ends and ambitions and desires, both seeking fulfillment, who find each other and maybe find some common purpose, some, some degree of overlap, some willingness to negotiate terms for mutual benefit. And so you see in the middle just a small overlap where the, 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 where the, the marriage finds common purpose. Maybe we'll raise children together, we'll live together, we'll, we'll, we'll help each other financially to some extent perhaps, we'll, um, and we'll, we'll, we'll enable each other. But ultimately, if that begins to break down or there feels to be an inequity within, within the, the interest within the marriage, well, the circles, they just pull apart and they break apart. And that's how the modern marriage works. But the biblical marriage is not like that. Think of the language in the Bible of being one flesh with one another. It means that your life is completely given to the other. The husband to the wife, the wife to the husband, so that you become one person. There are not two visions, two ambitions, two desires, two callings, two different ways of living. You are now one. And it's only when you understand the biblical vision of marriage that you can begin to understand why Paul can say to the wife, in everything, submit to the husband's leadership. Now, I know you don't have to tell me because I know many of you feel some discomfort with the things I'm saying. I understand it. I feel it myself to a certain extent because there is friction, isn't there, with our intuitions, the things that we've been raised to think and believe in the culture in which we now live. Some of you are no doubt thinking that this is massively regressive, that what we are trying to do as Christians is to pull society, or at least Christianity, back to a vision of, of life as it was lived decades or even centuries ago. We want to go back in time. To which I would say, listen, our, our calling is never to move backwards. We are rather trying to move upwards to the ideals that God has articulated in the Scripture. And history may be helpful, it may be unhelpful as a guide to these things. I think if you look back in history and look at how marriage and family life was practiced, you'll see some things that were better. You'll see many things that were worse. My instinct is not to want to just move back in, an, in a kind of um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a very simple way. It's rather to want to move upwards and forwards towards the ideals that God articulates in His Word. Others of you will feel that what I'm describing here is oppressive and stifling for women, and also verging on dangerous, of course, because there have been many, many instances, countless instances of women being downtrodden and, and being overlooked and even abused in the context of the power differential within marriage. To which then I would say, let's be careful to distinguish between authority and sin and recognize that authority is not inherently evil. It can either be used for good or used for evil, but in itself it's neutral. And let's also acknowledge that the Scriptures are clear on this, that God hates oppression in all its forms. That the leadership God teaches and which Christ himself embodies is the self-denying leadership of sacrifice of your own interest and your own good for the sake of another. So everything we say about this has to be viewed through the lens of Christ. And when Christ moves out of the picture, we have missed it entirely. Some of you will feel that 
what I'm describing here is something very prescriptive and limiting. We all have seen portrayals of the 1950s housewife and the, the immense degree of boredom that she was doomed with in the sense that you know, automation had come in, she didn't have the, the same degree of work to do in the home, and so she was largely become this redundant figure who could just only take interest in what she was wearing and the makeup and how to please her husband, and, and it become this diminished, narrowed vision of, of femininity, and no wonder the world reacted against that. And I want to say to you, I'm not trying to, to offer you a prescriptive model about the home, how the home should work, nor am I trying to drag us back into the 1950s, God forbid. I think when you really understand the, the biblical vision of marriage, you'll recognize that this is an extraordinary team or partnership interested in powerful impact in the world for the sake of Christ. And both husband and wife have to play an expansive and vital role in that vision or mission. Now, that's the teaching, the clear call for wives to submit. Set within the God-given framework of headship, that God gives husbands a, a unique place as being heads within the context of marriage and family, just as Christ is head of his church. And that this is an all-encompassing teaching that touches every dimension of your life. It's not that you reserve a part of yourself outside of the marriage that's separated from your spouse, but everything that you are is kind of subsumed into your spouse as they are into you. Now, I want us, having just understood what, we, what Paul is saying here, I want us to take a step back. You see, you, when you're reading a passage like this, you can just accept it as God's word and just obey out of a sheer willingness and desire to please Christ based on what you're reading. And I think that's commendable. I think it's better still when God enables us to see the great rationality and the goodness of his instructions, that these, these ideas are not arbitrary, but that they fit within the way he has built and structured things. And if you want to understand the way Paul saw marriage and why he could write like he does, there are two great pillars that you have to grasp in order to put this within its context. And they are that he saw marriage in the light of creation and God's original design, and that he saw marriage in the light of salvation or redemption, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ for us. And I want to explain both of those things. Let's think about creation first of all. It's vital that you understand that Paul thinks of marriage through the lens of God's original design. And the reason why that's so vital is because many people have wanted to do away with the instructions here by saying, listen, the reason Paul wrote as he did was because of the context into which he's writing, the culture into which he's writing. That given that in the ancient world there were few, if any, rights available for women, now that women had been brought into the, the church family and experienced um, the kind of equality that existed within the context of the faith of being um, co-heirs uh, alongside their brothers in Christ, now that they've been afforded that extraordinary dignity, there was the danger that, that, the, that the church might run ahead of the culture in such a way that it might backfire, that people would reject the church because the model of life that liberated women within the church would be so radical and so different that ultimately it would just be squashed and, 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 put and, uh, and um, sort of marginalized or persecuted or whatever else. And there is some merit to that argument. 
If you glance down into chapter 6, you'll see that Paul addresses the, the relationship between bond servants, or you can translate that, slaves and masters. Now, is Paul, does Paul think it's good to be a slave? No, he doesn't. He says elsewhere in his letters that if a slave can get their freedom, they should take it. But he's writing within the context in which that was just part of society, and therefore he has to instruct them how to be godly within those relationships. And so they say, well, listen, if he could say that about slaves... You know, there's only so far he could get in the few years that he has here, then, then maybe the same is true of marriage. And that given more time, more transformation of society, you know, if he was writing here in our present context, he wouldn't write this stuff because he'd want to champion the kind of equality that we now take for granted. And so I see that there's some force to that argument. But the difference is this. Whenever Paul talks about marriage, he always seems to cast his mind back to God's ordinances and God's patterns in creation. And I'm talking about the way God structured things before we fell into sin. So granted, there's a lot of mess in the world on account of sin. But if we can look at the way things were before we fell, before we fell into sin, then we're looking at God's original pattern, his original design, his original intention. And it seems to me that whenever you look at Paul's writings on these things, he tracks back into Genesis 2. So Genesis 1, the creation of the world. Genesis 2, the creation of man and woman and the marriage. Genesis 3, the fall. So the second chapter is the one that we're interested in here. And you can see that here if you just glance down the page to, to verse 31. He quotes Genesis 2 when he writes that, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You know, whenever... It was a Jewish practice and a rabbinical practice in particular. If you just took a verse like that out of a passage in the Old Testament, you assumed that your hearers understood all the context around it. So he's calling to mind the creation narrative, God's creation of man and woman. Even more explicit than that is 1 Corinthians 11, a very important passage. But if you look at 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3, he writes that, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ." And the head of, her, of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So what he does is he establishes a kind of hierarchy of authority and submission. He says that God the Father is head over Christ, and Christ is head over the man, and man is head over the woman, his wife. And he writes that, and then a little bit later on in that passage, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 8, again, he points back to Genesis 2. He writes that, Man was not made from woman, but woman from man, and neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now, this is vital, because what you have to see is that Paul is appealing to the structure of how God has made his world, the way things ought to be, when he seeks to apply God's ways in the context of the marriage. And the way things ought to be before it was messed up by sin. And if you look back at Genesis 2 and, and take that passage apart carefully and understand what's going on there, what is it that we learn about marriage there? You learn that the romantic vision of marriage is not, not the primary one. Yes, there's a love relationship of companionship, but it doesn't come first. What comes first is the mission that they're called to accomplish together. Nor do you see the modern 
marriage that I was describing, the kind of Venn diagram, the negotiation between two equal partners in which there's a kind of contract, and if either partner breaks the contract, well, the marriage is over. Rather, what you see is, as I've been describing, the deepest, most united, one flesh bond that exists between the man and the wife for the purpose of fulfilling the mission that God had given them together on earth, which in a nutshell was to rule the earth and make babies. And the two things helping the other, the one thing helping the other. Now again, this is an issue that's, that's hotly, hotly debated, okay? As people will say, look, when I read Genesis 2, I can agree with you to a point. I can see that the man and the wife are called to be one flesh in a shared mission. But there's no clue in there that the husband is given leadership and authority within that relationship. It seems to me that God's original intention was this, this total equity, this equality between them. And it's only after the fall that you see the imbalance with men dominating women and women then becoming subservient to men. Now, I agree that after the fall, there is a brokenness that, 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 that afflicts the male-female relationship. There's no question about that. And I think the gospel is seeking to restore the harmony and the beauty and the equality of worth that exists between man and woman. There's no doubt in my mind that sin wrecks everything. But here again, how clearly, you know, there's so much I could say about Genesis 2 and, and, and show you that I think you see extraordinary dynamics of authority in there in terms of Adam's role. But, but Paul's our best commentator. And what does he say? He says, man was not made from woman, but woman from man, and neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. In other words, what he's saying is this, that the ordering of creation is everything. And we ought to understand the importance of the way in which the sequence carries out in Genesis 2, that God, here's the first thing, God made the man and gave him a mission to accomplish in the earth. Then he made the woman out of the man and for the man, not the other way around. And therefore, if his calling is to accomplish something in the world, he's facing outward, so to speak. Her calling is to accomplish something with him, but ultimately her calling is to him as a helper to fulfill that mission out in the world. They have a difference of orientation or posture, if I can put it like that. Let me put this in the clearest terms. And listen, I, I suspect that this, this is the most difficult and controversial thing I'll, I'll say, but I think it needs to be said. But some people say, listen, I, the idea of submitting to a husband conflicts with my own sense of God-given calling, that I'm supposed to pursue this, that, the other, and submitting to him is then in conflict or antagonizing my sense of calling. What I'm trying to say to you is that I believe that if you choose to marry, if as a wife you choose to marry a husband, he is your calling. And it's not that all your gifts and desires and abilities and all the things that God has put into you suddenly become as nothing. That, that should never happen within the context of loving marriage with a godly leader, ever. But there has to be an ordering of priorities in which you understand that you were given to him, just as Eve was given to Adam. And that the posture of submission is the willingness to say, I lay my gifts 
at your disposal in that way, just as he then seeks to die to himself on your behalf. And in this mutual self-giving, this this self-emptying that takes place, the husband for the wife, the wife for the husband, there is a beauty and a harmony and a flourishing that can grow. And all of it seems to me to be rooted in God's original created design for the marriage relationship. You take sin out of the equation and suddenly it works beautifully, doesn't it? The husband isn't selfish. He can never domineer. He's not angry. He's not, he's not seeking to oppress or crush. He, he wants his wife to flourish. And she serves that vision by serving his will that she trusts completely and entirely. Sin distorts these things, no doubt about it. Christ wants to deal with us. He wants to change us. He wants to make it work again. And it can work. That's pillar one, creation. Always in the apostle's mind when he's speaking into these things. The other pillar that's in his mind is salvation, the story of redemption. The Bible story is of the church, it's God's people being the bride. Christ is the husband who rescues and redeems his bride by dying for her, self-offering himself on the cross in order to atone for her sins, to make her perfect and spotless and prepare her for himself. Of course, that's the very thing that Paul goes on to speak about here. Most of the force of that storyline where the relationship of Jesus to his church is paralleled with the relationship of the husband to the wife, most of the force of that storyline falls with the responsibility upon the husband, just as it falls on Christ. And I think that as we open that up, God willing, next week, you'll see the immense weight and responsibility that that God puts upon husbands that is, is almost a crushing weight if it were not for the grace of God to bring the enabling for it to happen. But it also shapes how the wife then understands her relationship to him. And this is what's clearly coming out. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So you're part of the church and therefore in the bride of Christ submitting to Christ, but you're also a wife submitting to your husband. The two things run in parallel. And then he says that as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, how, let me try and summarize this for you. How, if these two things are parallel, Paul thinks that the salvation story somehow is mirrored within the context of marriage. What does that mean for the wife? What is, what is her relationship towards her husband? What's her posture towards her husband? And the answer is something like voluntary dependence. That she sees him, begins to see him in a Christ-like role in her life as a leader and protector and provider. Not to the same degree or extent that Christ himself is, of course not. But in a lesser way, because they're acting out the drama of salvation even in their marriage life. She sees him as leader and protector and provider. Now I know that for a woman to begin to uh, treat a man like that or allow a man to see himself in that way is, is regarded in these days as demeaning. And, and, and women will say of this, listen, it's wrong for you to see yourself as in dependence to any man. You don't, need to, to, you don't need a man. You don't need to depend on a man. You are an independent woman. It'd be wrong. It'd be wrong. It'd be negligent for me not to quote Destiny's Child on this point. But you know how the song goes. It says, I buy my own diamonds and I buy my own rings. The shoes on my feet, I bought them. 
the clothes I'm wearing, I bought them. The rock I'm rocking, I bought it. All the honeys who make him money, throw your hands up at me. And of course, the, the message is emphatic. It's clear, isn't it? You don't need a man to be fully realized in your life. You are independent. You are woman. And then Paul comes along and says, no, you, your posture towards him is one of dependence and submission to him. You need to trust him to lead. You need to trust him to protect, to provide. So the message, you know, that if a man opens a door, it's, it's an offensive thing. How dare you open a door for me? I don't need a man to open a door for me. You know, that's the kind of tenor of the discussion, isn't it, these days, to which we say we, there's a humility in receiving the gift of leadership from another. Now, you may say, well, that, that does demean women in the sense that it, it puts them in a humble posture towards their husbands. To which I would say, listen, as Christians, we acknowledge that none of us are independent. We all find ourselves in the very diminished posture of absolute dependence upon our husband, the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom we owe everything and for whom we have done nothing. That is the fundamental understanding of the Christian life. I, I have brought nothing to the table. He's done everything for me. And that affects every one of you, male and female. And I think when you grasp that, when you grasp the fact that there is no such thing as true independence in this world, least of all in your faith, then you can begin to recognize that it's good for us to acknowledge the dependencies that God has built into our nature and for a wife to accept this leadership in the context of her marriage. Her husband is seeking to mirror Christ. And you can let that happen in a way that honors Jesus in a way that is part of his design for marriage. Now, before I close, I want to do a few quick-fire questions and concerns that I think may have occurred to a few of you as I've been speaking before I wrap this up. Here they are. Number one, what if you're not married? Which I think is the majority here this evening. I say a couple of things. First of all, there's no absolute, as I've just been stressing, there's no independence in any case. So even if you're single, you still are in a submitted relationship, be it to the church and other family members or whoever. So understand that. That's the basic status of the Christian. But I would say you, need to, you probably need to hear, it's, it's wonderful that you get to hear the Scriptures teaching on these things before you're married. Because if you're, if you're a woman in particular, you know, I'll say different things to men next week. But if you're a woman in particular, this needs to be part of the filter that you apply to deciding whether you marry or not, who you marry. If you can't respect a man, if you can't honor his leadership and, and recognize his spiritual devotion and his ability to, to, to be um, that representative in your household, that, uh, that head in your household, then you shouldn't be marrying him. Not yet, at least. There may be some very serious conversations that have to take place in order to, for him to become marriageable, in order for him to be ready for marriage, but he may never get there. And you've got to use this as a filter. 
You've got to recognize that this is what you've got to step into. You don't want to find yourself in a posture of disobedience some way down the line when you've married the wrong person or married someone who's unable to fulfill their Christ-like role in the context of marriage. Number two, what if you are married to an unbeliever? Now, this obviously was very common in the early church because as the gospel spread into new places and uh, there were female missionaries working alongside um, the apostles and those women would go into households and evangelize the women in the households. And so th- th- there may occur from time to time a situation in which a wife becomes a Christian and begins attending the church congregation, gets baptized, but her husband has no interest in these things. Of course, that might put her in a uniquely difficult position. And I, you know, I've met many women over the years who find themselves in something like that situation. What do you do then? How do you submit to a man who doesn't even love Jesus? Then I would answer this, listen, first of all, if ever there's a conflict between your faith, what Christ wants, and what your husband wants, Christ always wins. That is emphatically clear in Scripture. But you've got to understand that the teaching I've been unfolding for you is not something that's just unique for the Christian faith. We don't believe that marriage is a Christian institution. We believe it's a creation institution. It exists whether Christianity does or not, because it's built into God's creation. The way that it ought to flourish is also part of God's creation. And therefore, even if you're married to a non-Christian, there's a right way that that can be practiced and lived out. More than that, the Bible elsewhere tells us that this can be one of the most powerful ways to win a man to the faith. 1 Peter 3 says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Submit to your husbands. So that even if some do not obey the word, in other words, if they're not Christian, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. In other words, where he's expecting you to be difficult or to be disagreeable on these matters or to, you know, they may, he may expect friction or maybe you've been a bad wife historically. Suddenly, when you follow Jesus, your life is turned upside down. The one of the most obvious ways in which the husband experiences that is that he suddenly finds you to be the unicorn he's always wanted, the, the most extraordinary wife he ever, could ever have wished for. And then his heart gets intrigued. He's like, okay, now I want to know about the Jesus you serve. That's what the Bible teaches on these things. Number three, what about if you have a... If you're married to a man who is bad or harsh or ungodly, he claims to be a Christian, but he does not live up to the faith that he professes. Now, again, it seems to me that this is the kind of problem which is particularly acute in a world of individuals where we see our lives as, as, as boundary to the, our very segregated and siloed existence. We're, we're separated from others. But as soon as you put the marriage back within the context of the church as a community, the force of this problem is, is, is dulled because the church together, we, we call each other to account. And leaders and elders exist in churches for this purpose. So that if you find you're in a marriage with a man who doesn't love God as he ought to, the church has a responsibility to step in and help bring some kind of change there. And if he's out and out just harsh and bad to you, then that is exactly where the, the, the bigger picture of authority and submission that exists within the church can bring to bear the authority of Christ in his life to, to bring the transforming power of Jesus. And again, these are the things I've seen over the years. 
Number four, what about weak husbands who can't lead, can't make decisions, can't carry responsibility? I can sympathize that that must be a profoundly difficult experience. If you're a high-achieving woman, a woman who knows what she's about, who knows her mind, who has, who's gifted, and you find yourself in a marriage with a man who's, who's weak, who's unable to lead, who's unable to, to, to exercise that kind of responsibility and bear that authority within the, the married context, that would be extraordinarily frustrating. The temptation is to walk over him, to run faster than him, to push him in a way that's unhelpful. What I believe here is that I don't think Paul's calling for a wife to adopt a weak posture in which she is she has to dial down all her gifts so as not to 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 uh, humiliate or um, or uh, you know yeah humiliate her, her her inept husband. I don't think that's what's going on here. You've got to understand that when the scripture describes Eve as a helper to Adam, the language of helper really means something like a powerful enabler. It's used of God. It's the same word that's used of God normally in the context of battle, that God comes to help his people in the fierce context of battle. And so the wife helps her husband. And I think it really depicts her bringing her strength to him, her power to him, her abilities to him in order to help him. And it seems to me that when you look at things that way, the notion of submission can take on a new hue. There is care, there is tact involved there, not to to make things worse. But at the same time, a wife has an extraordinary ability to make a man better. And we we all know it, don't we, that the husbands and wives can make each other worse versions of themselves. You'd be in a home where they, they don't stop bickering and belittling each other. And where there's that, that, you know, over the years, they will become worse versions of themselves. So the antagonism, the, 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 the lack of love, the lack of kindness will eventually break one or other of them. But if you can destroy a person by being unkind to them or belittling them or or, or, or bulldozing them, or whatever it is that can happen in marriages, how much more can you help a person to grow? And any man who's, who's married to a good and godly woman will say, I'm a better man than I was the day I got married. I'll say that to you in a heartbeat. My wife is, is, is amazingly gifted. And in lots of ways, her gifting far exceeds mine. And I don't find that a threat. I find that, that rather because of her posture of joyful submission to my leadership, she has caused me to grow in ways that I am in some ways unrecognizable than I was the man that we married almost 16 years ago. That's what I'm talking about, friends. It may take patience. It may take endless prayers. It may take unbelievable self-control at times. But you have power as a godly woman to affect extraordinary change in the life of the man you're married to. Always keep that in mind. One last thing before I close. What if it still feels stifling? What if it still feels unfair? What if it still feels unequal? What if it just just jars with you and you think, this is not right? I do sympathize. I understand that there are adjustments that we have to make in order to really 
accept the Word of God in specific areas of our lives. We all have unique battles that we have to face to surrender our lives to Jesus. But I want you to understand this. Just because it's a struggle doesn't mean that God's way is wrong. The world will tell you that anyone or anything that requires of you kind of self-denial or the squashing of some element of your, your nature, that it is inherently wrong. And the Bible doesn't say that at all. The Bible says if you want to follow me, Jesus says you've got to lay down your life and follow me. And it's only in death that you experience life. It's only a self-denial that you experience flourishing. And it seems to me that if it's hard, that it just that doesn't make it wrong. It may become the very point at which God's sanctification in your life is most evident. It may become the anvil in the workshop. You know that great block of iron in the workshop that the blacksmith uses to hammer out the shape of the thing that he's, the tool or implement that he's, he's creating. Well, it may be the marriage. It may be this very calling that is the anvil in your life against which Christ is forming his likeness in you. And to reject it is to reject the opportunity of Christ accomplishing that holiness and that transformation, that sanctification that he desires in you and which ought to be your desire above everything. And therefore, friend, please understand what Paul says here when he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. You may struggle to do this for him, your husband, either now or one day in the future. But you can do it for Jesus. You are doing it for Jesus. It is unto the Lord. It is worship to the Lord. And it's on that thought that I want to close the verse I read at the very beginning of the service, the verse in Psalm 96, it said, we're called to worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. It's echoed here in this passage when we're told that Christ gave himself up for the church, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church himself in splendor, without spot, or wrinkle, or blemish. The reason why we offer Christ our obedience is because this is our beautiful worship. He's made us holy. He's put us in new garbs of righteousness. And now he, he requires of us that we now offer ourselves back to him. And that that is our right worship of the Lord. And all of us will find that that is going to be uniquely challenging in some dimension of your life to bring a holy offering to the Lord. Perhaps this is the very area where God wants that holy offering of worship. He wants you to take this seriously. He wants you to, 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 to silence the voices of the world that, that are in opposition to his word. He wants you to offer yourself completely to him. And that is your beautiful worship.